Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 with me. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And as we do that, I have a question for you. I wonder what comes to mind. What comes to mind when you hear the words spiritual warfare? I wonder. Maybe you think of unseen dimensions, epic battles between angels and demons. Maybe you think of demonic possession and oppression. Maybe you think of exorcisms. Maybe you think of paranormal activity and going hand-to-hand in combat with spirits. I wonder what comes to your mind because we all have an idea of what spiritual warfare is. And our world is filled with art and film and resources that are constantly talking about this topic. The genre of supernatural and horror and paranormal activity is everywhere. It's an ever-growing, ever-present industry. If we flip on the television, if we go to the movie theater, if we walk through just a bookstore, we'll see an ad for a new show, a new book, a new film about the supernatural or spiritual warfare. Our world is helpfully and unhelpfully obsessed with the unseen, with the unexplainable. But here's the thing. The church is the exact same way. Every decade, a new spiritual warfare expert releases a new book, a new resource filled with formulas to help you daily do the work of spiritual warfare. The shelves of Christian bookstores are full of books about this. We could spend the next hour walking through the short lists of, one, of ones that you should read and also going through the long list of things and authors and books that you should not read. Because many books and resources seem biblical on this topic, even within the world of evangelicalism. But they're simply deceiving. And they're flat out wrong. So what if we have largely misunderstood the topic of spiritual warfare? What if the church has ironically fallen prey to deception when it comes to these matters? What if we have been largely thinking about spiritual warfare really with the Bible closed and some other resource open? This morning we're going to be re-entering our summer sermon series to the letter of Ephesians. And the Spirit is going to address this topic and, Lord willing, in many ways, reorient, reform, and reshape our understanding of spiritual warfare here in God's Word. But before we dive into our passage, let me kind of catch us up to the letter real quick. I'm going to catch us up in the letter. Uh, Ephesians is a book about the wisdom and the mystery and the glory of Christ revealed through the people of Christ, the church. That's the overarching theme that's under and over every verse within the letter of Ephesians. And the breakdown of the letter is this. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us who the church is in Christ, while chapters 4 through 6 tell us how the church ought to live together in Christ. 
The first half is all doctrine. The second half is, for the most part, devotion and duty. Going a little deeper there, the first half of the, first half of the letter there in chapters 1 through 3, we see that the church is the new humanity of God, made up of people who are blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, saved, and sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And then in the second half of the letter, starting in chapter 4, Paul calls the church to, in light of who we are, to walk in a worthy manner, in devotion to Christ, to put off the old self with its darkness and its devastation, and to put on the new, which is the righteousness and holiness of Christ himself. We are called in chapters 4 through 6 to walk in unity and to maintain it and to grow in maturity We are called to walk in newness of life. And we are called to imitate Jesus' love, light, and spirit-filled life in our church, in our homes, and in our workplaces. And now we arrive at our passage this morning. And Paul starts his descent. He starts his descent in the letter, wrapping up the letter, and he calls the church to walk in the strength of of the Lord, to put on the full armor of God and to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be walking through chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you could find one under a chair near you. You can find the letter of Ephesians on page 917. If you do not own a Bible, feel free to take the one that's under the seat near you. We would love nothing more than to gift you and give you the Word of God this morning. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Please follow along as I read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on, fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we'll work through our passage. Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our minds, that you would speak to us from heaven through your living and active word. 
We ask that you would renew and reform our minds and hearts today by it. And Lord, strengthen your imperfect servant now to proclaim your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, to guide our time this morning, here's something for you to write down in your notes. Here's the big idea and the outline of our passage this morning. It's this. We are in a spiritual war. Stand firm, armor up, and stay alert. We are in a spiritual war. Stand firm, armor up, and stay alert. And to faithfully engage in this spiritual war, we must know our adversary. We see this in verses 10 through 12. We must know our armor. We see this in 13 through 17. And we must know the art of war. So verses 18 through 20. All right, so let's get going. Point one, the adversary, verses 10 through 12. War exists. It's a picture of relational enmity that sits deep in the heart of man. The, re- the reality of wartime is sad, isn't it? It's sad and it's inescapable. And when we look at history, we find rage upon rage, hate upon hate, atrocity upon atrocity in the midst of wartime. But there's a war that predates all earthly wars. And it's a war between two spiritual kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the war between these two kingdoms is raging even now in the heavenly places. Paul knows this. He knows this, and he has spoken of those heavenly places several times in the letter in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But he also knows that the war happens not just in the heavenlies, but on the pavement and in the life of the church. And so he writes like a commander to a battalion in wartime. He writes to the local church in Ephesus and the local church in Edgewood, Edgewood Bible Church. He writes this, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, Paul is calling us in these verses to recognize that we are in a spiritual war and to live with a wartime mentality. And if you're a Christian here today and don't think that you're in a war, newsflash, you are. The Spirit makes this clear. And we're to actively engage in this war, verse 10, as we find our strength in the Lord and in his might. Now, be strength there is in the passive tense which tells us that being strong is not something that we do in of ourselves. But no, our strength strength comes from outside of us. We are weak and insufficient, but God is strong and sufficient. And our strength comes from him, and he has given his people, verse 11, the whole armor of God. 
Now, we're going to talk more about that armor in point two in just a moment. But we are to put on this armor so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I wonder how you think about the devil. I wonder how you think about him and the way he works. Do you think of him as a little red man with a pitchfork and black tights sitting on your shoulder, whispering things in your ear that you should and shouldn't do? Or maybe you think of him as not a being, but as a force, a force that overcomes or enters people, possesses them, oppresses them, or represses them. Or maybe you haven't thought much about the devil at all, really, and don't know how to think about him. Church, God's word is clear. The devil is real. He is a spiritual being. He is capable of disguising himself as an angel of light, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11. And make no mistake, he is real, dark, and evil. And he he is in unity with all who are listed there in verse 12. Look there with me. He's in unity with the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as it says in verse 12, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against him and these forces. The devil and these forces are at war against us, against Christ and his church in the heavenlies, yes, but also on the pavement, the carpet of local churches like ours. We are in war against him. We're in a war against him. And do you know what this means for the church? that we're at a war against him and not flesh and blood. This means that ultimately we don't wrestle against the government or a political party. This means that we don't wrestle ultimately against Planned Parenthood or against some social justice warrior movement. It means that we don't ultimately go to war with the LGBTQIA community and its agenda and activists. Yes, All of these can be used as devices of Satan and means to unrighteous ends. But our war isn't against flesh and blood, but against the devil and the spiritual forces of evil. So let's not get caught up in the tyranny of culture wars. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. We have an active adversary, and it's the devil and his legion. So how do these forces work? How does the devil work? Well, we see in verse 11, we see that he is our adversary who is a schemer, a liar, and an accuser. And this isn't new. Paul is picking this up. He's going way back in our Bibles. He's going all the way back to Genesis 3 where we read of of Satan speaking with Adam and Eve and saying, did God really say? What a powerful scheme, idea, question. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced from Genesis 3 all the way to our passage this morning, I am convinced, and it's been said by many before me, that spiritual warfare is an ongoing battle over truth. Spiritual warfare is is an ongoing battle over 
truth, against that lie, did God really say? And that question is alive in the church. It's alive in the heads and hearts of Christians. Again, I don't know how you think about spiritual warfare, but you need to know that it's often subtle and it's often subversive and it's often scheme-based. It's less in your face and more behind the scenes. And the devil is diametrically opposed in these scheme-based ways against the truth of God. Our adversary, the devil, is the king of fake news. He loves to scheme and lie, and he is at work in the world and the church, actively luring us, tempting us, distracting us, scheming against the truth and against us. He loves to scheme and to fill our marriages, our friendships, our families, our churches with anti-truth, with lies. Our adversary is adamantly opposed to those who are in Christ. And he's opposed to the truth of God. Do you know what this means? This means that where there is hostility amongst us in any way, This means that where there is division amongst us in any way, politically or even doctrinally over secondary or third level matters, where there is marital or familial strife happening in the home or church over sin, miscommunication, negligence, lies, and deceit, where these things happen in our churches and our homes and our lives, that's where true spiritual warfare is happening. That's actually where it is happening. Spiritual warfare is a battle over truth. And therefore, we must maintain and pursue unity, maturity, and love for one another in the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected for a room full of sinners. And we must together find our strength in the Lord and stand firm against the schemes, the lies, the false truth of our adversary. And we do this by knowing and believing and practicing the truth of God's word here in this book, and ultimately putting on the whole armor of God, which brings me to point two, brings us to point two, the armor, verses 13 through 17. Let me read those verses once again. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, these are some of the most popular and prolific verses in all of scripture. They're so popular You've most likely heard a sermon or several sermons on these verses. You've most likely read about these verses in a children's Bible when you were growing up, if you grew up in a Christian home. My parents even bought me this plastic playset of the armor. They really wanted to drill that in. You've most likely studied these verses in depth at some point in your Christian walk if you've been a Christian for some time. But there are some common problems and there are some common misconceptions and misinterpretations of these verses. First, they are often ripped from their context in the letter. 
This has led many to unhelpful conclusions about spiritual warfare and the armor itself. Second, these verses in tandem with all the verses that came beforehand that we just read have led many well-intentioned and non-well-intentioned authors to teach false conclusions about spiritual warfare and the armor and to falsely lead the church into deliverance ministries full of unhelpful practices and formulas on modern-day exorcisms, spiritual mapping, binding Satan, rebuking demons, ceasing generational curses, and removing spiritual hexes. Again, these verses aren't ultimately about any of that. As one pastor, Jim Osmond, puts it, he said, these verses are about truth, spiritual warfare, and the armor is not hand-to-hand combat with demons, but the proclamation and defense of the truth of God. Third, the armor in these verses is often wrongfully divided up. This has led to more emphasis being on one piece of the armor over another. Fourth, and lastly, because Paul was in prison at the time he wrote this letter, he spent a lot of time with men in Roman armor, right? A lot of time with men in Roman armor. And this has led many to overemphasize Roman armor, the precious metals that made it, the leathers that made it, and its purpose in the church, and particularly in Paul's ministry. But this morning, with the Lord's help, I'm not going to rip these verses from the context. I'm not going to unhelpfully divide up the armor. I'm certainly not going to teach you about Roman-era armor this morning. My burden this morning is to show you that Paul is concluding his letter to the Ephesians in the most beautiful and brilliant way possible. It's incredible. In these verses, Paul is knitting together all of the glorious themes and parts of our salvation. That's what he's doing here. He is knitting together in a conclusive block form, knitting together all of the themes and parts of our salvation. He says, verse 13, look there with me. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. When we see a therefore, we should ask, what's it there for? And Paul is saying here, you have an adversary who is actively working against you. Therefore, take up or put on the whole armor of God so that you can withstand the evil day, having done all of this to stand firm. And the question is, I'm sure you may be asking, what is the evil day? Well, it's that long day that has been suspended and spanned from the fall of humankind in Genesis 3 all the way through until Christ returns. That is the evil day. For since Genesis 3, since that day, our days have been evil. And Satan, though he is limited, is at work against God's truth and God's people within this day. And we are to stand firm against him. You probably noticed that that word stand comes up several times, several times in this passage. We see in verse 11, the Spirit said, stand. In verse 13, we see two times, withstand or resist or stand, and then again, stand firm. And then verse 14, we read, stand, therefore. The Spirit wants us to see that standing firm and putting on the whole armor go together. 
We certainly cannot fight this fight as we're sitting down or lying down. We must stand. And as it says in verses 14 through 17, look there with me, we must fasten or put on the belt of truth. We must put on the breastplate of righteousness. We must put on the shoes of peace. Take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Four verses, one whole complete armor made up of six themes in the letter. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the spirit and word. Those two always go together. Those six. Let's now turn and work through those six themes in relation to these pieces of armor and see how they connect to earlier parts of the letter. First, there is truth. Truth is mentioned several times. As one pastor and commentator puts it, the important point here is not what does the belt of truth tell us about truth, what does the belt tell us about the truth, but what is truth according to the letter of Ephesians? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 13, we read, in Christ, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 4, we read that we ought to speak the truth. Church, in order to put on the truth and speak the truth, we must know the truth. And we learn truth from God's word and from the word made flesh, Jesus himself who is the way, the truth, and the life. We're to put on truth. Second, we're to also put on righteousness. That's where he goes next, righteousness. And righteousness is mentioned several times in this letter. In chapter 4, verse 24, we are exhorted by the Spirit to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. In order to put on righteousness, we must know the source of righteousness. We must know Christ. Third, there is peace. In these verses, shoes are not the point. Peace is. And that peace is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. Did you notice that? Did you notice that there in verse 15? There's a connection there between the shoes and the gospel and peace. And chapter 2 stated that Christ is himself our peace. And it is through him and his gospel work that children of wrath are made children of peace. That the hellbound are made heavenbound. That the disunified are made unified. That troublemakers are made peacemakers. By grace, by knowing Christ, we can know peace and then walk together in a worthy manner in that peace, in the light of the gospel. Fourth, there is faith. What does the Spirit have to say to the church regarding faith in this letter? So much. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As chapter 2 stated, it is through faith that we have boldness and confidence to go before the throne of grace. As I said in chapter 3, and the church is called to one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. As chapter 4 stated, We are to put on faith, stand in faith, 
walk in faith, live by faith, and fight the good fight of faith against the schemes and the lies of the devil. And it is by and through faith alone that the flaming darts of the evil one are extinguished. That's what we read there in verse 15 and in 16. How do we put sin and Satan's schemes to death? By putting on living faith. We're to put on faith. Fifth, there is also salvation. The whole letter, this whole letter of Ephesians is about salvation in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3 told us once again who the church is in Christ as those who are saved. And then chapters 4 through 6 have told us how the church ought to live together as saved ones in Christ. Salvation in Christ is the thread that weaves and holds the whole letter together. We are to put on salvation. Sixth, there is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's fascinating. The majority of the armor is defensive in these verses. Did you notice that? The majority is defensive. This is the only one that is offensive. The sword of the Spirit. And Paul's making it quite clear here in his language, a theological point. He is putting the Spirit and the Word intentionally together. The Spirit and the Word are never to be separated in the Christian life. For the Spirit and the Word are weapon, are a weapon together in our war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, beloved, if if your Bible is on the shelf and not in your hand, you will not be able to fight the good fight of faith. So read and memorize the word daily. Meditate on the word daily. Pray through sections of the word daily. Because if we're not living in the word, taking our thoughts captive to the word, renewing our mind by the spirit and the word, then we will not be able to stand firm in the truth when the schemes of the adversary come at us. So take up the sword of the spirit Take up the sword, the word of God. So with all this said, these, these six themes, what is Paul's big point here? What, what's he doing? Why end the letter with this? Here it is. All of these themes, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and God's word, all culminate in the person and work of Jesus It's all about him. He is the point of this text. He is the point of the armor. And so we need to grasp this. To put on the whole armor of God is to put on Christ. To put on the whole armor of God is to put on the whole Christ. And this is why Paul tells us back in chapter 4, verse 20, one of my favorite verses in all of Ephesians, to learn Christ so that we can put him on. If we haven't learned him, we cannot put him on. And oh, who, who is Jesus, brothers and sisters? Who is Jesus, this Christ, this armor of God? He's the Son of God. The Word of God made flesh. The one who exchanged a robe of f- splendor 
for frail humanity. The Son of God who, who came to this earth, who lived a perfect and holy and righteous life before God. And then he was crucified on a cross for your sin and for mine. And then three days later, he got up from the dead in his resurrection and ascension. Christ put to death, death. And he declared victory over Satan and the world. In the cross and resurrection of Christ, sin and death have been defeated. Victory is secure and sure because of Christ and because of the gospel. Isn't that incredible? In the cross and resurrection of Jesus, he secured salvation for all who would turn from their sin, turn from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and turn toward him in ongoing faith. And in his gospel, in that work, for those who have turned to Christ in faith, there is protection. There is spiritual protection. Christ is our ascended and victorious king. Paul has made that point over and over again in this letter. Christ is our present day reigning savior and king. And our adversary and the accuser, though he has some scheming power here on earth, it is limited because of Christ and his work. That is our hope, for Christ has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he will on the last day fully and finally put our adversary to an end. Amen? Do you look forward to that day? I look forward to that day. And it's only by learning Christ and knowing Christ that we can stand and put on the whole armor of Christ and follow him. And so if you're here today and you do not know this Christ, if you have not learned Christ, if you don't know what it is to follow him, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you more about the armor of God, which is Christ, and what it looks like to turn from sin and place your faith in him. Look for one of the elders here at EBC. Look for Pastor Jeff. We would love nothing more than to talk to you about the work of Christ for sinners like you and I. Nothing more. It's the reason we're here this morning. For worship, for evangelism, to spur one another on and to call one another back to the truth of the gospel. There is no, I think it's important to know this, There is no neutral ground in the spiritual war that we're in. You're on one side or the other. And so, Christian, if you are living in ongoing repentance and faith, if you are living in ongoing belief in the work of Christ on your behalf, then your worn and tattered clothes of unrighteousness and unholiness and sin and worldliness have been exchanged for a robe, have been exchanged for Christ's armor, the armor of truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation. And this has happened once and for all for those who believe. We don't take off the armor and then put it back on. We don't do that day by day. We either have put on the armor or we haven't. 
So Christian, rest in that security. That if you have indeed repented and believed, then you stand and you can stand firm in the armor of God, Christ himself. That is our hope. All praise and glory and honor to Christ. The Spirit's not done in our text, though. Thus far, we have looked at our adversary, and we've looked at the armor, and next we're going to look at the art of war. Point three, the art of war, verses 18 through 20. This will be the shorter of the three points here. Ephesus was a spiritual city, as we've seen in this letter. The temple of Artemis that stood at the center of the city gave the city its religious unity and its hope and its shape. The city's commerce and its Roman government had its own power, its own prayers, its own mantras, its own worldly way of life. It was a, it was a dark city with the dark arts woven into it. And Paul knew that. For Paul had spent three years doing ministry in Ephesus, there in the church, training up leaders. And even more, the Spirit knew of this. He knew the spiritual struggle of the church then, and he knows the spiritual struggle of the church now. He knows firsthand the spiritual war that is fought in the heavenlies and in the local church. And so here, the spirit of the hand of Paul presses in. He doesn't leave us on our own. He doesn't say, stand firm, armor up, and then leave. No, he offers us the art of spiritual war. And when I say art of war, I'm referring to those strategies, the game plan, the tools that the church has to fight the good fight of faith against the adversary. So what are the strategies, the tools that make up the art of Christian warfare? What are they? Well, we just read a moment ago that we have the sword of the spirit and the armor. We have the word of God. That's the primary tool we have to fight our spiritual battles, but that's not all. According to these verses, there's another, and it's simply this, prayer. Prayer. Paul is calling us here to a high view of prayer as he closes the letter. Just as the spirit and word are intimately linked, Prayer is also intimately linked in with the Spirit and the Word. So look there with me at verses 18 through 20. Pray, or praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." Again, just as the spirit and word are intimately linked, so is prayer intimately linked with the spirit and the word. And there's been lots of ink spilt on books about prayer, right? There are lots of, lots of books, book upon book upon book, written about this very thing. Some are helpful, some are not. Those that are not helpful often cloud the truth with extra-biblical formulas and patterns and mantras that are ultimately deceiving and flat wrong. So what does it look like to engage in the art of war and pray at all times in the Spirit? What does it mean to do that? What does it look like? I'm so glad you asked. 
Paul teaches us here two interweaving things. We pray for ourselves and we pray for others in the Spirit at all times. We pray for ourselves and we pray for others. It's that simple. This is how we fight our battles. We take up the Word and we pray. Word and prayer. Connecting this particularly verse 18, back to verse 10, prayer is the active expression of dependence upon the strength and might of the Lord. That's what prayer is. Prayer is the active expression of dependence upon the strength and might of the Lord. Now, praying at all times, that gets a little tricky, right? Are we to actively pray every second of every day? Never ceasing, never stopping? No, it means that we are actively looking to God in prayer throughout the day. Actively looking to God in prayer throughout the day, thanking him for the many gifts that we have. Asking him to help in times of need. Asking him to continuously wash us afresh in the blood of Christ asking him to help us engage in the war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Further, what does praying in the Spirit look like and sound like? Well, there's no, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Paul has given us prayers even within this letter. He has given us examples. He has given us two. The first is back in chapter 1, 15 through 23. The second is in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. In these sections of the letter, Paul has taught us how to pray. He has given us the words of prayer. He models what praying in the Spirit looks like and sounds like. We don't need to rely on someone outside of Scripture to teach us how to pray. The Word teaches us how to pray. We have a model and pattern here even in the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, in that prayer, we find that that the Spirit is... Spirit-filled prayer is filled with benediction, intercession, and exaltation of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, we find that we are utterly dependent upon God to fill us with his strength, presence, and power. Christian prayer is marked by benediction, intercession, and exaltation of Christ. And it's marked by God's strength, presence, and power. That's what Paul has taught us earlier in the letter about prayer. Our prayers ought to reflect dependence upon the Lord. And so, in our prayers, praying in the Spirit says, not my will, but yours be done. Praying in the Spirit says, I can't do anything in my insufficient strength, but Lord, you can in your sufficient strength. It says, oh Lord, not my thoughts and way, but your thoughts and way. That's what praying in the Spirit looks like and sounds like, and Paul has taught us that here in this letter. May we pray with and like Paul. Later today or later this week, here's an application for you. Open up one of those prayers. Pray through it. Insert yourselves, your your home, your church family into that prayer and pray in the Spirit. Pray for yourself. And pray for others, utilizing the prayers that we have here in the book of Ephesians. Well, Paul concludes verse 18, if you look there with me, pleading with the church then and now to 
pray, make supplication, to humbly appeal for all the saints. Show me a church that prays together and I will show you a church that fights the good fight of faith together. Pray for yourself and pray for others. This is why we have a member prayer directory. Grab one, pray through it. Pray with adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. Regularly making supplication for all the saints, all of the members here at EBC. In verses 19 through 20, Paul requests prayer for himself. Did you notice that? He asked for prayer that he would boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, that same gospel that we heard a moment ago. He requests prayer because he is an ambassador in chains who is weak, powerless, and spiritually tired. Brothers and sisters, if there was someone who was spiritually tired and weak, it was the Apostle Paul. And this is why he requests that the church pray for him. So let's not miss the glaring application here. Please pray for those in this church who regularly teach and preach. Please pray for me. Pray for Pastor Jeff. Pray for the elders. Pray for the teachers here at EBC that we would boldly open our mouths and proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We need prayer for the ministry of the word here at EBC. We need your prayers. Though we're not in an earthly prison, we do get spiritually tired, and we need prayer. Specifically, we need your prayers. And pray for strength and pray for boldness and then pray for one another to be faithfully bold and confident as ambassadors to share the gospel with one another, to share the gospel and the word with your families, your coworkers, and your neighborhoods. We all need prayer because we're all in the midst of spiritual warfare. We're all in the midst of a battle over truth in our heads and hearts. So take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and at all times pray in the Spirit for yourself and for one another. Engage in the art of spiritual warfare. Well, before we conclude this section and close our time together, I want to draw our attention to five words. Five words in verse 18. You may have noticed that I skipped them earlier. I want to end on this point. The Spirit says, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert with all perseverance. Five very important words, church. We are in a spiritual war. We are to stand firm, armor up in Christ, and stay alert. But we are prone to spiritual drowsiness, aren't we? We're prone to fall asleep on the job. We can't fight the good fight if we're asleep. We can't. The wonderful brother and pastor John Stott, quoting the Puritan William Gurnall, says this in regard to standing firm, the armor of Christ, and not spiritually sleeping, but staying alert. Here, here's what he says. I love this quote. In this armor, we are to stand and watch and never relax our vigilance, for the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares venture 
to creep on a lion's, on a sleeping lion. Look at Samson, whose hair was cut by Delilah while he slept. Look at King Saul, whose spear David stole while he was asleep. Look at Noah, who was in some way abused by his son while he was in a drunken sleep. And look at Eutychus, who slept while Paul preached. The church is prone to spiritual narcolepsy. We're quick to fall asleep, and we lack vigilance often. And so we need to hear this encouragement from Paul loud and clear this morning, church. We need to hear this exhortation loud and clear. So may we heed Paul's words, and may we not be like those examples that we just read, nor the disciples to whom Jesus said, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus said that right before he went to the cross to his disciples. It's almost like he wanted his church to know that and to remember that, to stay alert. So let's seek the Lord together. Let's armor up in Christ together. Let's look at the word together. Let's pray together and stand together. Let's engage in spiritual warfare, not as lone rangers, but together as the church, as a band of brothers and sisters. Let's do this together. Let's help one another stay awake here at EBC so that we not grow tired of the fight and let sin slide in. So we don't let mistrust and foolish preference and selfishness and disunity and immaturity grow among us. Let's stay, awa- let's stay awake and alert here so that we don't let sound doctrine infiltrate the walls of this church. And let's continue to make no provision for the world, the flesh, and the devil in our homes and in our church. We are in a spiritual war, church. So let's stand firm in the truth. Let's armor up in Christ and let's stay alert together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, Son and Spirit, we praise you for your word that is living and active, that is good for our faith and practice. We do ask that we would continue to stand firm in your truth. Help us to that end, Lord. We know that you will hold us fast. All of your children, all of those who are clothed in the armor of your son, Father. So we thank you and we praise you for that. And Spirit, I ask that you would cause us to live with a spiritual alertness together for our good and ultimately for your glory. It's in the name of Christ that we all pray. Amen.